Dog Pound, Husky Football Podcast, the third or fourth most mediocre Husky podcast on the entire internet. At least that's our aspiration. Remember to subscribe, rate, review, leave a comment or something that's supposed to help our podcast. Uh, you can go on somebody else's phone when they're not looking if they haven't properly protected it with uh, two-factor authentication and subscribe for them, and that will help our numbers as well. Uh, I am joined tonight, as usual, by Gaby Lucas, who is now going to make her first actual podcast appearance following a loss this year. Gaby, thanks for finally showing up after a loss, although the last Hi. time was beautiful. Oh my god, I forgot that this is the official first time because our Oregon podcast got deleted because the internet blows chunks. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, wow. Well, I was really hoping it was my fault so I could control it and like prevent Husky losses in the future, so now all hope is lost. Apologies. If you're trying to prevent it, you should do something in advance rather than after it's already happened, because I don't think not showing up on the podcast was going to take us back in time to before the game to prevent the loss. But nonetheless, uh, let's talk a little no, bit about no, the wait, Utah wait. game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, counterpoint, because per Ted Danson, we know that time is uh, not linear, but rather in the shape of a ginormous cursive Jeremy Bearme which means that what I do now affects last Saturday. Boom. Okay. Checkmate. Yeah. I think that was also a central theme of Russ Cole in the first season of True Detective. Mm-hmm. And then nah. they looked at the stars and everything was cool. Uh, let's talk about Utah. Uh, we won't talk about it for the entire podcast because it was another one score loss at home, which is getting to be depressing and sad. And I don't think anybody likes that. Um, the first quarter and a half looked great. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, we looked awesome. The run defense stepped up. We saw a lot of different guys at, at inside linebacker. We saw uh, Eddie Olafoshu. We saw uh, Jackson Sermon. It was kind of a smorgasbord of middle linebackers. Joe Tryon was pressuring the quarterback like crazy. Eason was sharp. The offensive attack was balanced. How did those first you know, 20 minutes of the game looked so good, and then it kind of turned and looked so, so bad from there on. I keep on going back and forth in my brain. Also, to clarify, before, just as a disclaimer, before we continue talking, uh, I haven't gone back and rewatched this, so, like, anything I'm about to say is based solely on my memory of the game itself because it's too it's too torturous for me. I can't get myself to go back and rewatch it, even though I probably should for the sake of accurate analyses uh but i keep on like playing mind games with myself of not knowing was it just that u-dubs offensive and defensive lines were crushing it and then they just kind of was it on them crushing it and then uh and then just losing their traction or was it that utah's offensive and defensive lines were just sleepwalking and then all of a sudden realized oh shit we should pull ourselves together and then just like play it at their normal speed because that really was what it came down to. To was, I mean, the UW's lines looked so good for that 
you know, first quarter and half, first half or so where they were really, uh, you know, UW looked like the better team, it, especially against U, uh, Utah's defensive line. To see, to see Washington's O-line play like that against Utah's defensive line was insane. And then the rest of the game happened. And that's more like what I expected, but it was so depressing because we had that taste of like what it really could have been. And I don't know if that started on Utah's side or UW's side. I can't make up my mind. Yeah, and that's a key, I guess, dichotomy. It's just the balance between the two. How much of it was their effort versus our effort, not just you know their their success versus our success. And Eason kind of exemplified that in how sharp he looked early. And then as the game went on, he had that fumble on a scramble where he probably shouldn't have even been running. He had two really bad interceptions, both under heavy pressure, where he just made really, really bad decisions. There were numerous plays where he showed that bad Russell Wilson pocket presence that no one else in the world can seem to pull off where you do the reverse spin and somehow there's nobody there on the other side for Wilson. But every time anybody else does it, whether it's Jake (laughs) Browning or Jacob Eason, naturally there are other people there when you spin backwards against the defense. Uh, I I give Utah's defense credit for that. I think some of it relates back to their play calling. They did bring more pressure as the game went on because it's clear that even if Eason identifies the open receiver in a blitz, he often is erratic in delivering it if the pressure is getting to him. You know, that's naturally the gamble that any defensive coordinator makes when they're deciding whether to bring pressure or not. But over the course of the season, it seems like that gamble is a pretty high odds bet for defenses. And and the more you blitz Eason, the more success you seem to have. Is there a countermeasure for that. I mean, we haven't really got the screen game going. I haven't seen us run a lot of draws. What do you think just off the top of your head? Is there an an antidote for the blitzing defense? If Easton's going to continue to struggle finding the receivers to this extent? Um, I don't think, I mean, in regards to Utah specifically, I don't really think there's a huge one because I mean, really when you're playing those short um, conservative, kind of passes that you inherently are release valves against those kind of defensive attacks. I mean, that's that really plays right into Utah's hands, unfortunately. So it's kind of one of those doomed if you do, doomed if you don't. That being said, obviously, I mean, you'd rather have a slant that gets only six yards and no yards after catch because Utah's such good tacklers than, you know, losing those six yards. In a, uh, so it's kind of, I mean, you're not going to win the game by relying on that when Utah brings pressure, um, but it's it's kind of you know like your best option. Um, I think I'm I, I when you mentioned like the screen game and not really getting that established or, or or rely on that that much. I'm I'm happy that they didn't try to overly uh, rely on that just because um, I mean Utah Utah's tackling is really way too good to kind of cross your fingers and expect to break them when they're out in space, especially because they're, you know, they play with their, um, their like strong safety up front a lot. And and there's a lot of lateral speed. So I think that was the right call, not trying to use that as a counter. Um, But yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a really easy fix against that kind of defense attacking Eason that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. And and we also have to 
keep ourselves in check to some extent that we're talking about by pretty much any measure, one of the 10 best defenses in the country and the Huskies put up 28 points on them. Yeah, Obviously you would have rather seen this distributed a little differently or at least carrying through the execution from early in the game and maintaining some of that as the game went along. Uh, And obviously as the, as it went further deeper, uh, the, the fourth touchdown was clearly a garbage time touchdown and Utah's defense had kind of shifted gears into letting the clock bleed out. And so, you know, maybe it's more accurate to say we scored 21 points against an elite defense, but that's still better than most teams have put up against Utah. Uh, But the other side of the ball arguably is where the game was really lost, where we went from holding Utah to a 0% success rate in all plays in the first quarter to pretty much not being able to stop anything in the third and fourth quarters as they just had no trouble uh, running the ball to stay ahead of the chains. And then when they did get into passing downs, it seemed like there were many defensive breakdowns, very little pressure on the quarterback. And this wasn't a situation where we had, you know, earlier in the year, we've talked about like one defensive back takes a bad route or gets beat on a, on a cover, you know, runs the wrong play or something. This seemed like kind of a systemic breakdown where we had multiple defensive backs constantly missing coverages, just getting beat by receivers and it resulted in some crazy stats for Tyler Huntley. He ended up 13 for 14 on passing downs for 204 yards. That's 15 yards per attempt. That's uh, crazy so stats. Depressing. And it's so different from the problems we've had and from what we forecast coming into this game because we did a reasonably good job on Zach Moss and then also containing Huntley. Uh, do you think it's, this was just kind of overcommitment to the run game and they took something else away? Or do you think it was just a handful of coin flip plays going the wrong way? Or did they expose something in our secondary that we that other teams haven't been able to exploit to the same degree? Um, I think it's a little bit of a combination of a lot of things. And for what it's worth, I think there's two things that happen on a lot of those passing downs um, or, you know, where there was. Um, where Tyler Huntley had success, and there were times where uh, there was really good coverage, and he just made an even better throw. And there was also times where it was just mediocre coverage, and he made a good enough throw because you know. Um, uh, and and for what it's worth, I don't think he exposed UW secondary in a way that was unprecedented based on the rest of the season. Um, I know in our in our we have a little writer slack group chat. And I know, I think it was Kurt brought up that there have been, you know, holes in the secondary that we're not used to seeing most of which is from, uh, you know, you could probably surmise reasonably that a lot of it is just youth and the fact that we've been spoiled with guys who have been young and in the past and have been able to kind of jump in seamlessly like Byron Murphy and Taylor Rapp. Um, so I, I, I think, I think, yeah, he, uh, he being Tyler Huntley did certainly take advantage of secondary when secondary coverage wasn't airtight and then even the sometimes it was and he was just really good frankly um but I don't think he was taking advantage of stuff that we haven't seen there for the taking anyway uh so I think it was more this wasn't really revelatory as far as what we can learn from the defense or the secondary specifically. It was more, I think, another data point that makes the sample size of um, uh, of qualities of this 
your known qualities of this defense and the secondary kind of more substantial and concrete and able to point to them. Science, yeah, and, 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 and like you said, Huntley executed. It wasn't everything given to him on a silver platter. He For put sure. some balls in really tight windows, and, and there were a handful of plays where I, I thought there was no way he was completing that pass, and I am very confident he would not have completed that pass in any of the previous meetings where uh, the Huskies have totally. run into him. And, you know, hats off to him. He looked so good compared to where he's been in the past. And they don't ask him to do everything in that offense, but what they do ask him to do, he does extremely well. Uh, you you hit on something yeah. there, kind of talking about the evolution of the program and and replacing players over time. And I do want to zoom out a little bit because we've kind of gone into uncharted territory for Chris Peterson. He's The Huskies are now five and four, three home losses, bad loss at Stanford. This is a kind of different position than the Huskies have been in for the last at least three years in his first year during the transition. Uh, you could argue it looks a little more like this season. It's definitely been a disappointing year. I mean, you could say, you know, if they won at Stanford, we'd be looking at three losses to quality opponents in close games. You could say if, you know, Chase Garbers had been injured when we played Cal, we would have walked all over them because they couldn't score any points. You could say flip a coin on a couple of these late plays in one possession games against Utah and Oregon. They could have gone differently. Yes, that's all true. This is also a four loss season uh, with still three more regular season games to be played already out of the running for the Pac-12 North. That's tough. Uh, I, what what do you make of that on its face? And, and how do you feel about that kind of for the rest of this year, at least? And, and does that how are you kind of emotionally coping with uh, a, a worse season than what the Huskies have had in recent history? Alcohol? No, just kidding. Um, mm-hmm. I I think for one thing, I have a couple of thoughts on that. One thing is this season reminds me a lot of a combination of 2017 and 20, like a higher floor version of 2015, which I know I've said the latter like so many times that ad nauseum, I should shut up about it, but it keeps getting brought up. So I'll continue that. Um, but the reason it kind of reminds me of 2017, besides the fact that, that, you know, there's a lot of youth on that team as well, is I remember after, oh shoot, what was, I think it was after the Stanford loss that year, pretty much that there was just a lot, there was a couple moments where it felt, I remember in the moment where you're looking at the schedule and the win losses uh, at the time in 2017 and going, oh, I don't know if we're going to make it feel remotely okay about this about the end of it and I, I don't know if you remember that at all because it's it's a lot and it, okay so looking back at 2017 a lot of it is in hindsight where you look at this the um you know the win-loss record and the and the schedule and you're like okay they're not at their best but they're fine and they're moving forward um but I remember some moments in the middle of that season where, for example, uh, again, our writers group chat was just losing our minds. And I'm sure a lot of the fan base was as well, because you don't, you know, you don't know what that next step is. And I think that kind of feels a lot like right where, where we are right now, where it's, you know, even if uh, UW wins out, which I think is very likely given where they are now, um, I don't want to tempt fate by saying that any other time, but it is. Um, even if they do win out, I totally uh, give that it, it will be still have been a relatively disappointing season. 
But I think the narrative at the end of the year, if that happens, will be not insignificantly more positive than what the narrative is right now, which is totally reasonable for what the narrative is right now. I'm not criticizing the fact that a lot of people are relatively down on it. Um, and, and then the other thing I think, um, obviously again, I am still disappointed, but we, I, and I, 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 I know I've talked about this ad nauseum as well, that this is a really high variance year. And so, um, hypothetically, it was a year where they could win the Pac-12 championship again and go to the Rose Bowl, but also it could look a lot like what it's looking like now. Um, and so I'm still disappointed, but I'm not like the sky is falling freaking out because of acknowledging that yeah i think to that to that same point i think there's there's a lot of ways people deal with disappointment in a sense like this some people get enraged some people disengage some people try to talk themselves into it you know rationalize it bargain through it the whole range of dabda um i'm saving my rage for the mercer exit off of i5 by and large I don't really have an option to disengage as long as we're continuing to record. So I I do kind of find myself trying to logically think through, you know, what does this represent? And one of the things I've I've come to is I think we just underestimated how hard it was going to be to replace all these players on defense. And we talked yeah. about, I remember the statistic you heard at the start of the year, uh, a lot of the the broadcasters latched on to the have to replace nine starters, which is a little uh, fuzzy because there's so much rotation and we didn't really have set starters at every position. But when you go through some of the players, you know, Taylor Rapp, uh, Byron Murphy, Greg Gaines are like all time, at least in this generation, some of the mm-hmm. best defensive players that have been in this program. And then Ben Burkirvin became an all-conference player. Uh, Tevis Bartlett, Jojo McIntosh, Jordan Miller were all really above average defensive starters, Jalen Johnson was excellent. That's a lot, a lot of good players to replace. And I think the roster might have the talent to replace those guys, but they didn't have the talent plus the experience to replace them. Uh, To that end, guys like Thule and uh, some of the inside linebackers, some of the key Taylor in the secondary, just haven't had the reps to maximize their talent, which makes me optimistic about the future. But at the same time, I probably didn't appreciate how how many growing pains there would be in the interim. It seems like uh, Levi, Miles Bryant, maybe Elijah Molden are the only guys who had the combination of the underlying skill plus enough experience to get there. But the thing about that is that's normal. That's that's almost every program in the country goes through the same thing. I was kind of doing a mental inventory of this in the college football playoff era because I think there have literally only been 10 teams that have made the college football playoffs since Alabama makes it so often. And, and some of those same teams repeat themselves. Uh, but so, you know, you could argue we haven't really seen any drop off. This is a narrow window. We're talking about a five, six year window. Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State haven't really had any drop off. Oklahoma is pretty close to that. But you go a step below that. Some of the teams who have either made it or are close now or have been close or are powerhouses like USC and Oregon have obviously had major down periods. Uh, Texas has been way down and maybe not even back yet. Florida's just coming back. Florida State is a like veritable dump at the moment. LSU's yeah. just 
back. They had a coaching transition. Michigan has been perpetually kind of disappointing. These are the blue blood programs of the country or like 80% of the blue blood programs. We're kind of a step ahead of them. Um, some of those teams haven't made the playoff and we have. We've won multiple conference titles and most of them haven't. And we haven't had to or seem to need to in the near future undergo a coaching change. So we have a coach in place. We have some stability. So all those things, long-winded way of saying we have a structure in place that I do believe in and has been successful. And even a lot of blue blood programs can't say that much. So that's one positive yeah. looking at it when you try to zoom out a little bit. Our struggles aren't unique. Other teams deal with the same crap. Um, yeah. One other thing, I, I've, oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask a question because one of the other things I've seen around social media and seen on even, I think, in the Seattle Times were some comments about fan engagement or fan behavior, people leaving early, not coming back after halftime or not showing up to the stadium. Do you have any thoughts about that? Does that matter to you? Do you think that does is that relevant at all? Or do you even think it's true? Um, first off, before responding to that, um, I had a thought about your earlier, you know, what you were saying earlier about other programs, et cetera, um, and where UW stands in relation to that. And it, um, I, I am going to kind of go back to what a lot of what I talked about last week, which is that wins and losses are what we measure as fans, but they aren't necessarily the most accurate predictive present wins aren't the most accurate predictive measure of future wins and i think so when you look at for example uh um uh, andrew percival on twitter posted a thing about the, the metric the advanced metrics of where UW stands which is obviously much higher than their wins and losses um which i'm not using that to comfort you know that's not like a thing that we should look at and go like oh so we're good but for example, the counterpoint or the counter picture to this is, for example, um, 2016, no, 2016, I think it was, or 2017 USC with Sam Darnold, where they, that would have been 2016 USC. So after they tried Max Brown a little bit, yeah. he didn't work out, switched to Sam Darnold, they kick ass the rest of the year, um, where uh, people were giving, for example, Clay Helton and the, the program itself so much credit for being like, hey, look at how much they've been winning now. And then, but because all of the predictive metrics underlying all of those wins and losses weren't really all that good, then the moment that Darnold, through, we found out, was pretty much carrying that team, the moment he's off, then the dumpster fire that is that program kind of reveals itself the next season. And so this is coming back to what you were talking about with the other programs and where UW stands uh, in relation there too. This feels to me kind of uh, in the grand scheme of things, kind of like the reverse of that. Um, and I'm not going to predict that UW's necessarily going to the playoff next year. I mean, we don't even know who's going to return. Um, but it does feel very much so like those the execution is really coming down to a, a few, a couple plays each game against high quality opponents. Um, and whether or not, I mean, I've seen some people on like Twitter or whatever say that there's some institutional failure on, I don't know, the attitude or whatever of the team, which, I mean, I suppose that's fair conjecture, but at the end of the day, that is just conjecture. And I don't think any of us really have any evidence of that, uh, that there's some like magical 
personality crisis of the program um, because all that we can really analyze is on the field. Um, I suppose, and, and it doesn't make sense otherwise. because if if the team had collectively given up or they had like absorbed some kind of human weakness from their the coaches, then <laughs> yeah. we you know we wouldn't yeah. have like Terrell Bynum improving week after week and fighting for tough yards on a fourth down, and we wouldn't have a quarter where our offensive line dominated probably one of the top three or four defensive lines in the country, and we wouldn't have like an a kind of under uh, experienced, underskilled at the moment, Jack Sermon, like hitting people as hard as he can in a game that's probably not going to turn out well. Like, there, there's enough examples of guys working their asses off that being weak or being, you know, not working hard enough or not being inspired doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah. yeah. And, my, and my main problem with that is that it's not drawn on any concrete, tangible evidence. Like, it is all this kind of whimsical aura speculation that it's like you can't prove or you can't disprove when someone says something like that as a claim for why a teen is is not getting it done so it it reminds me of when you know sigmund freud back in the day came up with all these uh little mental whatever things and one of them was one of them was the symptom was you don't believe what he's saying. So it kind of reminds me of that. Like you can't disprove it's, it's not a provable or disprovable, uh, um, hypothesis when, unless there is actually reports like coming out of the locker room, I suppose. So, and especially when you can point to concrete executional or at times play calling or whatever failures on the field. I don't really, it seems like a, people that are searching for answers because they want a more complicated one than the thing that's staring them in the face. Yeah, I think just to bookend that's, this, yeah. I you know, the the current invincible powerhouse in college football is Alabama. They win the national title every other year and win at least seemingly 11 or 12 games a season. Alabama uh, had a 12, 11, 12 year, I'm, I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, but they, I looked this up a couple of weeks ago and it's going to be close. After Gene Stallings was the coach, I believe, through 96, and he won a national title. He, he won double-digit games most years he was there. They had trouble replacing him. They went through a handful of coaches, uh, Mike DuBose, uh, Dennis Francione, Mike Price was obviously start and stop, and, and Mike Shula <laughs> was there. Shula had, I believe, a losing record as the head coach of Alabama for a three- or four-year stretch, and they had a 12-year stretch, I think it was, between Stallings and Saban, where Alabama, the Crimson Tide, the superpower of college football, was something like four games over 500 and well under 500 in conference. So, it's, you know, this is a 12-year period. We're talking about three losses in four weeks to really good, uh, largely really good opponents. I I'm not going to, you know, light myself yeah. on fire over that. Uh, I, I remain confident in the long-term trajectory of this program for a lot of reasons. And if you look at the defensive depth chart we have coming back next year, yeah, a couple guys graduate. Levi might leave for the pros. I wouldn't blame him if he did. Get paid when you can. But outside of that, it looks really good. And with this extra year under everybody's belt, another year in the weight room, another year uh, being coached in another offseason, getting used to the, the defensive plays, I think this is going to be a very good defense next year. And it's going to go back to being a major strength and we'll be having a completely different conversation this time next year.
Yeah, I for the most part, I agree with you. And it really does come down to... God, I hate that I keep saying the same words over and over, but it really does come down to the fact that all of the numbers and both the numbers and the eye test, really just everything that is the most accurate predictor of future success aligns with the thought that the trajectory for next year is going to be quite a bit better. Um, And I've, I've pointed to this in the past in writing that really this is just a higher floor, higher ceiling version of the 2015 team um obviously the parallels aren't perfect but uh i mean there's pretty decent evidence of where they're going in the future even if the gut feeling as a fan kind of sucks right now um yeah yeah well said so with that let's take a quick break we'll come back on the other side we'll talk about oregon state whether we should fear the beavers and a little bit on the rest of the pac-12 Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about the short week and the Huskies heading down to Corvallis. Uh, Oregon State, surprisingly, looked like the doormat of the conference before the year. They've now won three of their last four, oddly all on the road. They still have a really long home field conference losing streak. Uh, this game is uh, at the end of a short week, Friday night in Corvallis. Uh, Gaby, are you, you know, I know you've been high on Jake Luton for a long time. The Oregon State offense does a lot of good things. Do you think they do enough good things to offset the kind of uh, swinging barn door that their defense represents, or is this going to be a real challenge for the Huskies? Um, yeah, I, I think I think it is kind of set up to be the perfect trap game in a uh, in a Sarkeesian coached world. Um, I really don't think. I think okay. I think. For Utah's offense, going up against Oregon State's mostly sieve of a defense, um, I think it could kind of, the last two games could have one of two effects, and I think one of these is much more likely. Um, I suppose there is a chance that after going up against Oregon's defense and Utah's defense, both of which are quite good, um, especially the latter, um, I think there is a chance of them just being, sure, a little bit of exhausted and, and because and not having necessarily being able to have established a rhythm over the last three weeks. Um, but I think considering the fact that the offense played quite well uh, in the aggregate, all, th- all things considered, um, against Oregon and Utah, um, Jacob Easton's interceptions notwithstanding, um, I think it's much more likely that what happens is that the offense, UW's offense, that is, um, really goes to town. I mean, if you're scoring 28, or I guess, I suppose, arguably 21, but whatever. Um, if you're scoring 28 and, what was it, 30? 31, yeah. Who cares? Yeah. 31 yeah. points against Oregon and Utah. I just, I can't, I, I really can't see them scoring less than, Less than a lot, I suppose, against Oregon State. Um, yeah, that being said, I yeah, think Oregon State also could yeah. do a lot on offense too. That was Go, pretty much the same same point I was going to make. That if, if, if we're just going to see such a stark difference play by play between Utah constantly putting Eason under pressure and Oregon State's not going to be doing that. Our offensive line is going to look a lot better this week, more consistent. 
if they find a way to get pressure on Eason, there might be some trouble, but that's just not something that they've done against anybody all year. And it works at every level. Our, our receivers should have an easier time getting open faster in routes. So even if uh, the pressure does get there, if they're blitzing, it should be easier for Easton to find them more quickly. Uh, they've had some recent success against the run. I think their last two opponents they've held to relatively low yards per carry, but some of that has just been poor execution and poor performance by their opponents because they've kind of hit the low point of their their own schedule. So I, you know, I think you're right. It could turn into a bit of a shootout, but I, I ultimately like our chances to win a shootout. I don't. I think the only way this we stay under you know, 38-ish points in this game is if we kind of take our foot off the gate gas late because the result is not any longer in doubt. Uh, I am a little bit interested. Yeah. I've seen the betting line kind of uh, somewhere between 10 and 11 points. On the road on a short week, that might be a little bit tough. Does that sound right to you? Do you think we win this one by double digits in the end? Yeah, I think so. I think Man, I really feel like we're tempting fate here, and I hate it so much. But, uh, yeah, I think I think circumstantially a lot of things work against Washington. But, I mean, again, other than the win, other than, other than the fact that they lost the last two games, I mean, they've still looked pretty good, you know, for much of those games. And this is a, you know... I mean, this just goes back to the fact that Oregon State's defense is not great. And also, for what it's worth, I think, obviously, they that Oregon State has had some success against the run the last couple uh, games. But I think, for one, Arizona's kind of slipped on a banana peel and gone back to being a Sumlin coach team. So that kind of makes sense there. And then, I mean, if you're playing Cal without Chase Garbers, I mean you don't really have to defend anything other than the run. So it makes yeah. sense when you're able to put all your resources there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I really hate making score predictions. Uh, so I, I, I but I, I would assume it's going to be, I would put money on, on UW there if that's the line. Uh, but who knows, maybe they'll backdoor cover. Yeah, that that very possible. I I agree with you on that, and I think part of my rationale is that if this game, uh, you know, if we were setting this line a couple weeks ago with the, all the same players and setting you know the same health and everything, it would be nowhere near what it is. So if we're using Oregon and Utah mm -hmm. to project Oregon State's performance, that's probably a uh, little bit of a mistake. It's not the right way to evaluate it. One other yeah. thing, speaking of Oregon, uh, that happened. Uh, in the Pac-12 last week that was of interest was the Ducks going down to the Coliseum and beating the pants off USC, who I think we discussed last week seemed like maybe not a good bet to beat Oregon, but at least would give them a challenge in one of their tougher road tests of the year. Were you surprised that Oregon hung 52 on USC and, and USC didn't really have anything to say in response? Wait, it was that much? Oh, no. I knew I knew Oregon won. I didn't. I had a I went. Saturday night, I uh, went to go um, forget about the UW game. I, I had a hockey game that was about when the um, Oregon, that Oregon-USC game was, so I didn't watch it, and then I was kind of depressed about college football, so I didn't really check up on college football news. So that that score is actually a, uh, uh, news to me. I, I was wrong. It was <laughs> but, 56. Uh, it was 56-24. 
Oh no. Oh no, Trojans, no. Now I know. Okay, now I'm putting, I've been reverse engineering the news, sporting news via Twitter. Now I know why there's been so many articles coming out about who's going to coach USC. I was like, I assume Clay Helton's going to get fired at the end of the year, but that was just an assumption that carried over from last year. Now I get it. Um, How much? Yeah, okay. Well, I'm not that shocked because USC is, you know, they can beat anybody and they can lose to anybody and they can lose to anybody by a lot. Uh, But, but wow. I'm not even mad. Well, this game kind of, I I watched, I watched this game for the first half and a little bit into the second half. There was a sequence late in the first half where uh, Slovis threw a pick six that put Oregon up by 11, 21 to 10. Then he engineered a really solid drive uh, to score a touchdown with 20 seconds left in the half. And it looked like USC was going to get themselves back in the game. Got it down to 21-17 coming out of the half, except they gave up a kick return touchdown going into the half. So they were immediately back down 28-17 and then gave up a touchdown right away in the second half. I think it was on the very first drive and it was just downhill from there. It was just off to the races for Oregon. And it was really seemed to me that they kind of got in Slovis's head early. They were disguising blitzes and they it, he was just throwing into coverage constantly. Like really, really bad throws. Throws that made Easton's interceptions from last week look inspired. They were just like directly to the de- defense and easy, with easy runs back uh, for long returns or, or, or uh, even the touchdown in that one case. So, you know, I think it could have gone differently if uh, they held on to the ball better, but in the end, they just were kind of shot themselves in the foot too many times. So like you said, but any given week, <laughs> USC can beat anybody, including USC. So uh, not terribly surprising. Uh, looking ahead to next week. So hopefully, Friday won't bum us all out into not paying any attention again this week. It's two undefeated teams this late in the season. I believe it's the first time there have been two games between 8-0 and teams uh, in the same day in something like 100 and 275 years or something. It was, I, don't, I don't know what it was, but it was something that had never maybe happened before. LSU plays Alabama, one versus two, and then the uh, sneaky one is the Penn State-Minnesota game. Minnesota, of course. Uh, Eight and zero by beating the likes of Fresno State and San Diego State, and I'm not trying to infuriate our producer who's going to the game, but their route to eight and zero has been a little bit different. Uh, what are your thoughts on these games? Are you looking forward? Are you going to pay any attention to these, or is it just kind of a <laughs> the the national championship is out of the picture for this year? Um, two, two things. Two things about Minnesota. One. I think they're the perfect example of current wins not necess- not holding as much predictive weight to the future wins as we give them credit for. Um, the other thing about that, how oh my god, how great would it be if Minnesota went back to a like late 50s, early 60s style powerhouse? Oh my lord, I want that to happen so bad. Oh my god, just to just to shake things up and for how how effing weird. That would be to have Minnesota be, oh, I want them to be, I want them to win a national championship so bad. I know it will never happen, but, oh, the memes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that'll be fun. <laughs> I just, oh, man. Yeah, uh, I think I'm I'm excited for Alabama LSU. I just think, um, uh, I think that's, I know it's kind of a cliche answer, but I think 
uh, I, th- I don't know. I think it's so fun seeing how LS- LSU was such a, for so long it felt like they were just such a tired, uninspired, uh, boring, ineffectual offense. And it's been so fun to see them just just turn that around. And it's also not only that. I mean, granted, for LSU has the, the easiest or the best access to talent per capita of any other program in the country. So, like, obviously they have an easier job uh, rebuilding or revamping any given any given year or any given unit uh, because of that. But it really has been interesting seeing that how quickly they could turn around that offense from their identity being a boring, slow, outdated, uh, low-scoring one to seemingly overnight, um, really exciting and fun to watch. Um, so even though, obviously, being in Louisiana, they have the most access to talent, it is definitely somewhat of a blueprint where if you're another program who's, I don't know, say Michigan, some would say Washington, I disagree for mostly, but not... 100 percent uh who's looking to turn around an outdated offensive philosophy um i think lsd is a really interesting case study uh and i love joe burrow he's such a weirdo i love him yeah i I mean that's you could condense a lot of that not all of it but a lot of it down to lsu didn't have a quarterback for 20 years and then joe burrow showed up uh, on the transfer cover step and suddenly they had an awesome quarterback and it completely changed everything and I, I, I think part of the theme of this game is that Coach O is just hilarious and and it comes off kind of like an adult sometimes, but he's just funny and mm-hmm. seems like he'd be super fun to, you know, drink beer and, and eat gumbo with. Um, and Nick Saban's mm-hmm. the exact opposite of that. So it's like a like a Star Wars totally. evil empire versus the rebellion thing. Not the least of, you yeah. know, also because Alabama really leans into being the evil empire. So I I think, you know, pretty much anybody who isn't an Alabama fan, if you're neutral on this, you'll probably be cheering for LSU. Uh, I don't know if they're going to win, but it will be fun to watch. And it certainly, it seems like it'll be a lot more fun to watch than the last time they were one and two in the country and then had that, what was it, like a nine to six game or something. And it was just like brutal to watch. I think that was when the uh, yeah. Honey Badger was still in LSU. And, oh, God. Uh, that was the year that they played <laughs> each other twice. Both games absolutely sucked. And then L- LSU somehow got knocked out of the uh, college football playoff, even though Alabama didn't even go to the conference title game that year. That was a weird one. Uh, that'll probably oh happen God. again this year. But like you said, Minnesota is on track to beating Penn State, Iowa, Northwestern, and Wisconsin and punching their ticket to the college football playoff. And that will be great. Oh, my God. I want that so bad. <laughs> I grew up in the, that's in the, 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 that's the greatest thing. gopher media market watching Lawrence Maroney. And, uh, God, I wish I could remember all the crappy running backs they had. They had some good running backs. Thomas Hamner <laughs> and uh, I don't remember all their names. But they, they always had 2,000-yard rushers, it seemed like, every year. Because they just with Glenn Mason, they'd run this zone blocking, and they go seven and five or eight and four every year based on their conference home and away schedule, and the fact that they would play like Louisiana Monroe and San Jose State, and nobody any better than that in non-conference every year. So they start out three and zero, then typically go about four and five in the conference, and that was that was their season. Then they'd go to the Music City Bowl, and they would give up sixty points to Texas Tech, uh, and that happened I think twelve years in a row. <laughs> 
And they might do it again this year. They certainly did the schedule part of it. We'll see if uh, they follow through and lose these last four games and end up back in the Music City Bowl. But I, I'm pulling for them to successfully row the boat and good for PJ Fleck for getting paid. I think he just signed a contract extension through uh, the next time two eight no teams play each other yeah, in the same day. I think it's like a seven year. Yeah, it's like a seven year friggin' contract. I think if I saw it right. Um, oh my God. I want, there's any number of outcomes of Minnesota's just program in general. Almost all of them would make me happy, but especially them winning a national championship. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. If uh, the Huskies can't win, and I think by law, North Dakota State is not eligible to win uh, the college football playoff. So I'll go with Minnesota as my, my next choice. I think that'd be very fun. There we go. So let's go. Let's oh, let's wrap this up. Let's do a little plug time. Um, do you have any any shows that you want to discuss or any um, non uh, football related media that you'd like to recommend to the avid listeners? Um, well, this will be I'm going to I'm going to plug Seattle International Comedy Competition again because it's officially the wait. Yeah, it's officially the first week of preliminaries. Go see a show. You will see these people on late night soon. So do it. Um, and then you can say that you saw them before they were famous. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep being really annoying about sick until the end of November because that is how long it runs, and I can because you and I are the only voices on this podcast, <laughs> and there's no one to stop me. Uh, It'd be super so weird yeah, for me to argue with your recommendations. Sick. So yes, continue. Yeah. Nobody's going yeah, to stop that would be you. Weird. Um, go to sit. <laughs> um, I think, oh, I definitely mentioned, I mentioned the good place the week where our, um, where our, uh, podcast got deleted by the internet, which sucks. Um, but I'm going to, because it got deleted, I'm going to say that it, the good, the good place is awesome. It's great. I referenced Ted Danson and his time uh explanation earlier in the podcast it's just a fantastic it's just a fantastic thing that exists and like the first couple episodes i watched i was like i don't know about this and then i got into it and it absorbed my life i almost made a friend of mine fail out of grad school because i introduced her to it right around when her exam season was starting and then four days later she texted me and was like i'm done with every episode that's ever aired (laughs) I also am about to flunk every class that's ever existed. Uh, yeah, check it out. There's probably not a lot of people who listen to this who are also the primary fan base for that show. But you know what? Go outside your comfort zone. Uh, watch something that isn't a thing that you would think you would like. And maybe you won't like it, but maybe you will. I think that shows. I'm not very good a, at marketing. A little bit more accessible than you're making it out to be. It's a good show. It's. I think you don't have to oh, be yeah. like a, a huge. Uh, like comedy nerd to enjoy that. It's pretty enjoyable. Um, oh, totally. It's funny that I, yeah, you mentioned the, the friend binging that because I am kind of just never, I, I I watch a show. I can maybe watch two in a row of a show, but I, I get beyond that and it starts to get to be diminishing returns. And I, I just kind of want to like watch for a while and think about it, come back to it later with pretty much every show that I've ever seen. 
the there are only two exceptions. One is The Wire, which we've talked about before. The other is uh, actually mm-hmm. Jack Ryan, which isn't a great show, but it's a fun show. It's kind of like <laughs> they distilled uh, 24 down into the right number of episodes so they didn't have to throw in like 36 different pointless plot twists. It's just it kind of keeps rolling along. It's they do the new season just got posted season two. I think it's eight episodes. They're all under an hour. So the whole thing adds up to be like uh, basically feels like a, one super long movie, but you can break it into pieces. Um, interestingly enough that, that I mentioned two things and bunk, uh, whatever the actor's name, Wendell Pierce is in both of them. Uh, also a huge LSU fan. I believe he's from uh, just outside of new Orleans. And I've heard him talk about that before. So it all comes full circle. Nice. Uh, and if you're not into that, DVR, the Husky basketball game on Friday, they're playing Baylor, who's ranked 17th in the country in their first game of the season, which is cool. Uh, They're going to be really fun to watch this year. Uh, We're going to have a lot of Husky basketball content coming out later to be determined whether we'll record any podcasts about it. But I hope that we will at some point. And it's going to be a fun year for that as well. So even though that veers uh, pretty close to just recommending the same thing we're already talking about, I say DVR because it's on at the exact same time as the football game on Friday. Try to watch them both. If you can't, just read uh, Max's recap online because he's going to watch them both uh, and somehow post about it immediately after the game is over. I think that's it. Gaby, any last thoughts before we sign off for the night? Well, I do have a last thought that is, oh, my God, Cody Pickett is coming next week is a sentence. Yeah, that's that, that might be true. I've definitely thought that a bunch of times. Yeah, and I mean, I think so. We're, we certainly aren't going to get him on the podcast by not thinking about wanting him to come on the podcast. So we're at least. Don't tell people he's not coming. He's coming on there we the go. podcast. All right. Wow. And with that, I think we are good All to right. go. Have a good night, everybody. Go dogs. Let's come back from Corvallis, uh, a game further away from 500. There we go. Do good things. And uh, don't do bad things. And bye. I was raised in the wild.